Well, good morning, church family. As we begin our time today, I just need to ask a really important question, and it goes a little something like this. Who still listens to the radio? Anybody? Okay, wow, that's surprising me. Okay. And if you're under 20 years old, you're like, what is a radio? I've never heard of that. Um, okay, but so growing up, in all seriousness, uh, I remember listening to the radio a lot growing up, and one of the radio stations me and my family listened to the most was a radio station called KCII out of Washington, Iowa, okay? So that's near where I grew up at. And KCII's uh, kind of their tagline was, today's weather, yesterday's music, all right? So I had this privilege of being able to grow up and listen to 60s, 70s, and 80s music as a little kid. And so today, if I hear some of these songs, I'll start singing along with them or I'll know who the artist is. And Olivia's really impressed by this. Actually, I don't know if that's true or not. But she didn't grow up hearing these songs. She's like, how do you know that song? And I was like, it's KCII. That's how I know it. Um, in one song I was reminded of this week as I prepared for this sermon, it's from the famous theologian and singer, Tina Turner. All right? And so I've been practicing this, and the song I was thinking of goes a little something like this. Oh, what's love got to do with it? You know it Got to do with it, right? You know that song. All right? And I, maybe I missed my call as a Tina Turner uh, cover you know, singer. No, definitely not true. But in all seriousness, as we prepare to dive in here today to this sermon, and it's our last um, week of what is a healthy church, it's really applicable, that question, what's love got to do with it? And for a healthy church, it's got everything to do with it. It's got everything to do with it. So the last three weeks, we've talked about the importance of the gospel, We've t- talked about the importance of disciple-making here and around the world. We've talked about the importance of uh, strong leadership and strong membership and being involved in the church. And now this last week, we're going to be talking about what's love got to do with it, and it's got everything to do with it. So with that today, though, there's, there's also kind of an interesting factor here. We have an uphill battle to climb because the word love has been hijacked by our culture to mean a thousand different things that don't even scratch the surface at what it means to actually love, right? You know what I'm talking about. So today, you can say, you can use the same word for I love my mom, which is true, I hope you love your mom, but then you can also say, I love my hey dude slip-on shoes, all right? And if you don't know what hey dude slip-on shoes are, you're better for it, okay? But you could say, I love my mom, or you could say, I love my shoes, or I love pizza, right? So it's, it's the same word, and it's, it's watered down. It means so many different things in our culture today, but it's really important that we learn the biblical definition of love, because it's superior, it's better in every other way, and we see it through the example of Jesus. So without further ado, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, starting in verse 34. Gospel of John Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 13, starting in verse 34. And now as you're turning there, we're going to kind of be helicoptering down into two verses. And they do stand on their, their own really well. But whenever you drop down on two verses only, you kinda, it's nice to know the landscaping you're flying over before you get to where you're helicoptering down into. So this takes place on the night Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's in the upper room with his closest disciples, uh, and he's... Uh, Judas has just left. Jesus says, he dismisses him and says, what you're about to do, go do it quickly. And then Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples and he says this in verse 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In two brief sentences, Jesus summarizes his entire life and his ministry, and then he commissions his disciples to embody this same thing among themselves and then show that out towards the world. So these two verses, they're so simple, but they're absolutely supreme. So at face value, you can read it, you see it, you're supposed to love one another as I have loved you. That's simple. We can understand that. But you spend your whole life understanding more and more what this looks like to really live out in everyday life, to know how Jesus has loved us and then how we love one another. So it's simple, yet it's supreme. And what Jesus is saying, it's a pretty big deal, isn't it? This is a pretty big deal. When you think about Jesus towards the end of his life and he gives this new command to his disciples, and so we're going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking what these two verses look like and how we can apply them to our everyday life. And to do that, I just together, I want to answer four questions. And those four questions are in direct correspondence with these two verses. And so here's the four questions. What is new about this command? Question number two, how has Jesus loved us? So Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. So we need to know how has Jesus loved his disciples? How has Jesus loved us? Question number three, why is love the indicator? So in other words, why is it that why is love the way that all people are going to know that we belong to Jesus, that we're his followers? Why is it love and not something else? Then the last question, question four, how do we love others practically? So at the end of that, Jesus says, by this, all people are going to know by your love for one another. And so we want to walk out today knowing at least a little bit more of what it practically looks like to love other people in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ as well. So let's start off with the first question. What is new about this command? Jesus says, I've, I'm giving you a new command. Verse 34, I'm going to read it again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So there is something new about this command that Jesus gives, but this isn't the first time Jesus' disciples would have heard to love other people. They, this wouldn't have been like, Jesus, the first time ever they've heard, oh, you're supposed to love others. And the reason we know that is because in the Old Testament, God gave Moses the law, and he told him to write it down for the people. And in Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18, it's going to be up on the screen, it says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God's people in the Old Testament, they were steeped in a tradition that took seriously loving your neighbor. That doesn't mean that they were great at it, but they knew the importance of loving your fellow brother and sister. And you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love other people. So why does Jesus say that loving one another is a new commandment? What's new about it? Well, the answer to that question is in the second part of verse 34. If you look down again, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You you are to love one another. So what's new about it is Jesus is pointing to himself. Jesus is pointing to himself. You're to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is the standard. So this leads to our second question. If Jesus is pointing to himself, how has Jesus loved us? How has Jesus loved us? Because that's what makes this commandment new. It's the same commandment, and he's putting a new emphasis on it. So you know when uh, a book is updated, and it's like the second edition, or the seventh edition, or the 21st edition, there's new information, relevant information that needs to be added into the book. And here, Jesus, he's doing the same thing, but he's updating what it means to love. 
So Jesus is, he's revising what it means to love. God's people have always known what it meant to love. They've known that from God himself. He saved them, redeemed them uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery to be a people to belong to himself. But now Jesus is, he's revising it. He's updating it. It's even better now. And he's saying, love one another as I have loved you. So let's just think about this for a second. The disciples, they would have had a front row seat to know how Jesus loves other people and how he loved them. So Jesus had these close-knit disciples, these men, these 12 men that he was raising up to be leaders of the church. He also had these very close female disciples that were co-laborers with him. And if you were one of those close disciples, it would have been amazing to be up close and personal to all that Jesus did. So let's just think about this for a second. Can you imagine following Jesus around everywhere, watching him heal people of every sickness and every disability, cast out demons, walk on water, rebuke storms, feed the 5,000? That would have been absolutely remarkable, wouldn't it have been? If you were there, that would have been amazing. But Jesus, he didn't only have a ministry of power that the disciples would have witnessed, but Jesus also had this ministry of gentleness and kindness and love towards sufferers and sinners. So when you read through the Gospels, you see that when Jesus is kind of, it seems like he's being harsh or he's rebuking somebody, it's almost always with the hardline religious leaders who really aren't leading God's people very well, but are being terrible shepherds. Or sometimes he's rebuking the disciples because they don't have any faith and he's told them something a thousand times. But when Jesus is around lost people, sufferers and sinners, he is so filled with compassion, graciousness, and love towards them. And the disciples would have had a front row seat to this. So I'm also thinking of uh, some examples here of just what would it have been like for the disciples to see Jesus well up with compassion when he saw the crowds and they were helpless and they were like sheep without a shepherd. So his heart was just welled up with compassion for them. What would it have been like for Jesus to touch a man with leprosy who's unclean? You're not supposed to touch people who are unclean. That makes you unclean in the Old Testament. But Jesus, he's not unclean and he can't be made unclean. When he touches people, they're made clean. But can you imagine Jesus touching a a person with leprosy and loving them? What that would have been like to see Jesus' love in that way? What would it have been like for Jesus when the woman who touched the tassel of his robe that had been bleeding for 12 years and she was healed, that Jesus turns to her and shows shows her so much dignity and calls her daughter and says that her faith has made her well? What would it have been like for Jesus when the disciples were telling the children, go away, he's got more important things to do, and Jesus said, no, let the children come to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he he prayed for them and he blessed them. What would it have been like to see the love of Jesus in that moment? What would it have been like to see the love of Jesus when there was the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, there was the big crowd of people around, they were going to stone her, and then Jesus says, the one without sin cast the first stone, and then everybody starts to leave because everybody knows I'm not without sin. And Jesus, he's the only one without sin in that moment, and he doesn't cast a stone, but he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, nowhere. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. What what would it have been like to see Jesus and his love on display in in that moment right there? But not only that, so there's all these examples of these other people that Jesus loved on, but what would it have been like for Jesus to love you directly as a disciple, as a person, as a friend? Can you imagine um, traveling around everywhere with Jesus, who's God in the flesh, and you're talking with him, 
and he's, you're having conversations, and he's listening to your questions, and he's being patient with your doubts and your misconceptions. He's always answering you with grace, but also perfect truth, and he knows all your flaws, and he knows every thought in your head, but he loves you to the core. That would have been something else, wouldn't it have? And Jesus is saying, just as I have loved you, love one another like that. That's what Jesus is saying. But even that, that's not even the full scope of Jesus' love, right? And so here in the church, we don't have to think very hard about this, but what above all those other things, those other ways that Jesus loves, what is the most profound, courageous, and sacrificial way that Jesus has displayed his love for us, for, his, for all people to see? What, what is that way? Here it is, Romans chapter 5. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The answer to how has Jesus loved us, the greatest example of that, the climax, it's the cross. And aren't you grateful for that today? It's the cross. In Revelation 1.5, it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The cross is the greatest example of how much God loves us in sending his son to die in our place. And the disciples, they didn't fully know this in the moment when they would have heard this about Jesus talking about love others how I have loved you. They always would have known the first part of that, those interactions with other people, how he's loved them. But when Jesus died and Jesus rose again and the Holy Spirit came, they would have known what it meant when Jesus said, love others as I have loved you. So the world's definition of love as an emotion or as an attraction or being fond of someone, it's vastly different than a biblical definition of love. Love that is distinctly Christian is a love that is so great that it would go to a cross for you and for me. A love that's so powerful that it can reconcile an enemy and make them a friend. It's a love that can bring things that are spiritually dead and bring them to life. It's a love that left the glory of heaven to become like one of us so that we could become like him. That's what the Father has done for us in Jesus, and I am so grateful for that today, that we know this good news and we know this love, aren't you? 1 John 3.16. A lot of us know John 3.16, which is a great verse, but 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love, right? So we're getting teed up here. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers, for the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's what that means. So this commandment's new because it's based off of the example of Jesus, and there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another person so that they can be raised up. It's you pursuing another's good at your expense. That's what love is. The other person is getting the good end of the deal at your expense, and sometimes it feels like, man, that sounds like a lose situation. But you know what? When you do that, God, that's the way God works, and so often it ends up turning into the biggest reward of our life when we lay down our lives for somebody else's good. So now, let's look at uh, this third question here. We got to answer this. Why is love the indicator? Why is love the indicator opposed to our evangelism or our service or our giving or our doctrine or our activism in the community? All those other things are fantastic, but why is love the indicator 
that all people are going to know that we're his disciples? Why is love the indicator? Let's look at that. And here's the answer. It's because God is love. That's why. It's one of his attributes. So it doesn't only describe God. Yes, God's loving, but it's who he is at its core. God is love. And if we belong to God, then naturally we're going to display that love towards other people. So I know I'm reading a lot of scripture today, but we, it's just, the New Testament is just saturated with the same theme over and over again. I'm going to read from John again. 1 John 4, 7 to 12. John wrote this to the churches of his day. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. There it is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus was the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's, this is what it's all about, church, right here. God's number one goal for our lives is for us to bring him glory by first knowing his love, most clearly seen in Jesus' sacrifice in our place. But then as born-again people who have tasted God's love for us, then we're sent out into the world to show his love to other people. Okay, so does, does this sound familiar to anybody? A love for God and a love for other people. When Jesus was asked by one of the Pharisees, and they were trying to stump him. They said, hey, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this is the greatest commandment. There's nothing greater than this, and this sums up the entire Bible, is love God with everything, and then love your neighbor with everything. Like we said earlier, it's, it's so simple, yet it's so supreme, it, it, it's, it's like, yes, I, I'm reading that, love God, love your neighbor. That sounds simple enough. We're summarizing the entire Bible in just a sentence. But it's so supreme because it takes a lifetime of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and working in our hearts and working in just like the daily situations that we come in contact with with others for this to get, for this to get deeper and deeper into our life and for us to embody this and show this to others. This is, it's so supreme and it's so important the Apostle Paul writes about it in his letter to the Corinthians. In the Corinthian church, they were obsessed with spiritual gifts and spiritual activity, and Paul kind of gives them this rebuke, and this is going to be up on the screen too. You've probably heard this before if you've spent time in church. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. All right, I don't think anybody wants to get woke up in the morning by a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, all right? Um, that's not a compliment. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned like a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul's basically saying is that being super religious and having all this religious activity in our life but not having genuine love, it's a big goose egg for us. It's a zero. It amounts to nothing. And a whole bunch of impressive spiritual activity 
But without God's love at the center of all that, it's useless in every single way. What's love got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. That's what Paul's saying right here in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is, in, this is especially important to us as a church because we could be killing it at great preaching and music and have the most vibrant kids' ministry around, and we could be giving tons of money away and food away to people. But if we don't have love at the center of all of that, the love that God has shown us in Jesus going outward, it doesn't mean anything, does it? It doesn't mean anything. We'll just be fooling ourselves. So if we're striving to be a healthy church, above everything else, we have to be striving for love because God is love at his core. It's who he is, and it's it's who his people should be. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, love, 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 but what about the truth? What about the truth? You know, we can't forget about the truth, and no, we cannot forget about the truth, and we will not compromise on the truth at all. But what good is the truth if it's not delivered in love? What good is the truth if it's not delivered in love? So you can be fearful, you can be angry, you can be grouchy, you can be arrogant and stand up for the truth. We know that. There's, you can watch the news and see that. You can watch different people who have a ministry online, a Christian ministry, and you can see that. But they're just kind of grouchy and like it's up there upset at everybody. It's like, who's going to want that? It's the truth and it's love. See, if we're going to penetrate the darkness, it can't be with a canned version of the truth. Because people, people's greatest need is not just for us to give them the right answer. Like we just, like just blah, like there it is. I shot out the truth. And God can use that because Paul actually talks about some people preach the gospel out of rivalry and selfish ambition. And God's so awesome that he uses that anyways. But that's not the way he wants us to deliver the gospel. What, what people need more than anything than just answers spewed out, is people need for us to embody the one who is the answer. Are you with me? People need to see Jesus in us, and then the truth is coming out, and that's what we want them to be responding to is like, what? okay, I'm hearing the truth. I've actually heard your truth before, but I'm, I'm hearing it differently now because of the way that you're speaking to me and the way you're responding to me and the way you're bearing in this with me. Does that make sense? It's the truth and it's love. All right, so I want to get practical here. Question number four, what does this practically look like in our everyday life? How do we love others practically? Well, fortunately for us, if we keep reading in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us the answer. He's got a list for us here. So starting in verse four, here's a, dis- a description of what love is. This, this is love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So I've got a question today. How are we doing with the list? How are we doing with the list, church? And don't get too discouraged because I don't know about you, but oftentimes I am pretty darn awful at the list. And I am not embodying this in my life. And I fall really short. And so here's the worst thing that we can do after getting the list here. The worst thing that you can do, the worst thing that I can do, is roll up our moral sleeves 
and just bear down in our own strength and say, okay, I'm going to conquer the list. I'm going to go after it. That's what I'm going to do. Okay? So it says, be pa- love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't insist on my own way. Okay, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. I'm not going to insist on my own way. Is that the way we're going to get it done? That's not the way we're going to get it done. No. But that's not going to get us anywhere. But here's what we need more than anything else if this is going to come out of us. We need the supernatural power that comes from the Lord himself. So Zechariah 4.6 says this, it's not by power, it's not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we are not going to be able to do this in our own strength, and we're not going to be able to muster it up. It's not going to be because of grit. We're not going to roll up our sleeves. Oh, I'm just going to be more patient today. I'm just going to be more kind today. That's not how it's going to come about. It's going to come about from the Holy Spirit working inside of us. And guess what? This is good news. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5.23 says. All right, so the Spirit produces fruit in us. Picture like a fruit tree, a healthy fruit tree that's in good soil, that gets sunlight, that's getting water. It's going to produce fruit. It's going to produce good fruit. And if the Holy Spirit is doing his job, and he wants to do his job, if we're helping the Holy Spirit do his job, that good fruit is going to come out of us. And the, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, and then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All these things are going to come up and out of us. It's not going to be from us trying harder to love, but it's going to just flow out of us by the Spirit. And how is that going to happen? It's going to happen by us drawing near to God. It's going to happen by us slowing down and spending time with him, the one who is perfect love. You know, when a person... Uh, like a kid will spend time with a parent or a grandparent, and then later you'll say to them, oh, you've been spending time with your dad, or oh, you've been spending time with your mom, or you've been spending time with your grandpa. Because they say things like them, or they're acting like them, and we act like the people that we are fond of and that we spend the most time with. And it's going to come out of us. It's naturally there's going to be this rub off. And it's the same way with us and the Lord. But if we're Christians... And we don't spend any time with the Lord and we're just kind of busy doing our life and we're kind of out there and we don't spend any time with God reflecting on him and who he is and what he has done for us in Jesus. Going back to the first week, the, the, the first week of being a healthy church is the gospel, the, the importance of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has been sent and he's been condemned in our place so that we could have the righteousness of God and we could live with God forever and that There's this kingdom that's coming, and that now we get to invite other people into this kingdom, and there's no better news than this, is there? There's no better news than this. And when we reflect on that, and we know what God has done for us in Christ, that is going to come out of us towards others in the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ as well. Because Jesus says to love one another as I have loved you, but Jesus also says in the gospel, he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And the, the world cannot do this. The world does not have the, the power to do this because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't even get along with the people in their house, okay? But we're called to get along with the people in our own house, in this house, God's house, and then outside of these walls, our coworkers, neighbors, people that we would call our enemy, God has called us to love them and lay our lives down, even for our enemies, because that's what Jesus has done on our behalf. And... There's one last thing I want to say about 1 Corinthians 13 that's really important. 1 Corinthians 13, it's not just a list that that we should look like if the Holy Spirit is working in and through us, but it's also a list of what God is like. 
because God is love. Okay, so I just I really want to remind us of this this morning. Um, we're getting close to being done here, but I just want to remind us as a church, God is love, and this list is a description of love. So our God, he's always patient and he's always kind. Our God, he's never arrogant and he's never rude. He's not irritable, he's not resentful. Isn't that encouraging to know as we watch the news and we see everything going on in our world that God's not irritable and he's not resentful? God's not sweating it. It's God is love. He's always rejoicing in the truth. He's always bearing and enduring with us. He's always believing in us. His love never gives up on us. If you read through the Psalms, you see over and over again in the Psalms, the people who write the Psalms, they're writing, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The love of the Lord endures forever, endures. That's who God is. And the greatest way that we know this is the fact that God's perfect son was nailed to a cross in our place. And so what's love got to do with being a healthy church? It's got everything to do with being a healthy church. What's love got to do with being a healthy Christian? Everything. What's love got to do with being a healthy spouse, coworker, friend, parent, got everything to do with it. In John 15, just moments later after he would have said what he told the disciples in John chapter 13, he reiterates the same thing. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he has this famous line. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Praise God. That is who Jesus is. That is the example that we have.